think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love. It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die. Was there a bit of fandom for you when it came on? Oh, huge. And I did not try to hide. <laughs> did not try to hide at all. Out of the Box with Serge Negus on FBI. played you can head over to fbiradio.com to catch up on mornings or any other program here on fbi now today on out of the box i'm joined by one of australia's top independent documentary photographers and photojournalists he's been the recipient of three world press photo awards for work covering the transition of east timor to an independent state the australian bushfires the 2004 tsunami aftermath in arche as well as being awarded australian press photographer of the year twice among many other awards i must say his name is dean Saul, and he makes stunning evocative portraits that you know deeply look into the kind of apocalyptic world that we're facing with climate but also the deeply human side as well and how that's related to a changing global economy dean thank you for coming on the show mate appreciate it thank you now, look, you grew up in Sydney, 1970 Sydney. Your father was a dogman rigger. Mum worked in fashion retail. Firstly, can you tell us what a dogman rigger is? Because I'm sure a lot of our audience don't know that. Uh, dogmen were, they, uh, the, 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 like, they were obviously employed in the building industry, but, you know, the guys, they used to take loads up to the top of the building, and they were the guys who used to hang on the hook um, and direct the direct the load, whether it be steel girders or what have you, and, you know, to the, to the top of the site and... And um and 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 rigging you know that that sort of you know knowing how to fasten loads and and this pretty and that hardcore work. stuff really like you, they're those classic photos you see of, like people hanging off the Empire State Building like when it's being built like off a crane literally right it was a tough industry back then yeah <laughs> but you know I think it got outlawed by the late sixties I, I guess around mm-hmm. late sixties early seventies. And then, you know, growing up in that family, I mean, like, in you being a photographer, like, at what point, like, did you start to have your own creative urges, like, in terms of photography? Like, is, was your family very creative outside of these kind of very kind of working class jobs that they were doing? We weren't a very creative household, I'd have to say. My, my, my father was, but it, it was it was really kept underneath. You know, like, we didn't see much of his creativity, I think. I mean, initially, he wanted to become a political cartoonist, I believe, in his early life, but that was, you know, belted out of him by his father, you know, literally and metaphorically, I guess. Um, and so he was, you know, essentially forced into the the building industry. But mm. you know, by the end of the by the late eighties, I could, you know, I watched my father. He used to take, you know, photographs. Um, he had a you know medium format um, camera. A Yashica used to used to um, you know walk around with the ones you know waist finder type cameras you'd look into type thing. Wow. Um, and and in the early nineties, you know, he he resumed a um, a life drawing. You know, um, he started life drawing at you know Paddington, um, so I, I was kind of perplexed by that. To, I, I had no idea he had such a talent for drawing, but he really had a, a really a, a real talent for drawing. But that's as far as it went. Like uh, in terms of you know creativity in our household, it was a pretty. I mean, we were, we were, I guess statistically, we were a fairly you know average family: two kids, a dog, a car, and yeah, yeah. lived in a red brick flat. Classic, just Aussie suburbia, right? That's right, yes. And how has that influenced your work, though, like, <coughs> and the kind of direction you've taken with it, you think? Well, uh, you know, uh, my father was very politicised, you know, working in the, you know, building unions, um, you know, the BLF before that was, you know, disbanded. Um, you know, we grew up on a healthy diet of, you know, ABC television and, and things like that. And, you know, and, and I learnt a lot of, you know, I guess a lot of my, you know, 
political philosophy was was you know ingrained in me from from my father and um, you know and I then later on in life I, growing up I mean all my childhood all my you know teenage years were in red brick flats we lived yeah. in initially in Hillsdale which is essentially a, a, just a, a commune of red brick flats and then would m- move in about 1978 to Botany where the rest of my sort of teenage years were spent and and what point did you yourself pick up a camera for the first time well that was in my teen years about I'd say about 16 or or 17 my father went on a trip to um, uh, the US and I, I asked him to bring back a like I gave him some money and asked him to bring back a buy an FM and a Nikon you know FM2 a you know, small lightweight 35 mil, nice. yeah. mil camera so that was my first my first you know um, you know real camera and that was when I was about you know six, 16 or 17 and then at what point did you actually then start looking at it seriously as like a career option for yourself that was in I'd say about 1988 I would have been in year 11 Mm-hmm. I guess at high school, and we went to a, a careers market. Those sort of trips they take you on the schools and to try and introduce you to, you know, career opportunities. And and um, at the at that um, expo, which was at the the Horton Pavilion at the time, there was a a, a, a very little a little store was it, said it was the City Morning Herald, and it just said simply, "Do you want to be a writer, photographer, or an artist?" That's all it said. And and I thought, wow, photography that could be. That could be kind of interesting, yeah. You know, like a, you know, I had the idea. I thought, you know, you know, maybe you could, you know, it, it was a way to sort of, you know, talk to people and, you know, and, and gain lots of exposure at the same time and, and do photography, you know, with that. And so there you go. And then that's where a very illustrious career yeah. kicked off. Now, look, getting into the music though, I, I can imagine we're going to hear a lot of very good rock music in this little little segment but what have you got first for us you got you got midnight oil which is very fitting given they just kicked off their australian tour first one in about 15 years or so um in alice springs and you've, you've chosen lucky country i mean why did you pick this song specifically what does this mean to you well i think i think it's i think it's as potent as as it was when it was written and that was almost 40 years ago but i i think it's it's as relevant that song today could be as, as relevant to to our our society now as it was then it's, a, it's just a great song yeah yeah i mean there's, there's a lot of choices you know i had to really it was a kind of a, a, a data dartboard really yeah, yeah but you know it's a classic of a song isn't it i mean like there's there's some level of irony in in, in the title really isn't there and i mean in, in your work like have you experienced that kind of i guess irony about australia being a lucky country in so many ways but also so terribly i guess disparate in the way that certain people live their lives whether it be indigenous communities or queer communities you know in the sense that there are certain people in this country that just don't get that lucky country side absolutely i mean i, I mean I, my whole life has been sort of documenting that you know as a documentary photographer we we're exposed to a, a you know much of a lot of society and a lot of society's ills and and uh, and henceforth so, but yeah like that's why i guess it resonates so much Your hopes and then it makes you run. 
As you go, there's so much space the heat moves you. Terracotta homes, backyard barbecue and eucalyptus smell. It's fine on the clothesline. There's fast food and slow life. The red roof, my silence. Comic interruptions. Surely there's some relief in the comic art. The badges made of work. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus, and my guest on the show today is multi-award-winning photojournalist Dean Sewell. Now, Dean, at what point did you start to hone your photographic skills in a direction that I guess 
was very much about storytelling. You know, you're you're employed by the Herald and you're making these images for them, but like it obviously started somewhere and then ended up somewhere else, right? Like, well, yeah. I mean, the, for the first ten years of my time, my my career started on the Sydney Morning Herald as a press photographer, and as a press photographer, by and large, here working in Australia, you don't have a lot of a lot of editorial say. You know, you're more, you're almost like an illustrator, and you know you you're virtually need your your task is to try and take a, a complex issue and distill it down into a single frame. So press photography is, was always like certainly back when I was working was more, was more about the single frame. As I grew and developed and my influences, you know, they sort of changed and evolved as well. I saw there was greater potential in photography for me and you know and that and that was in sort of you know photojournalism and um so that meant sort of you know telling you know stories in depth and it meant you know moving beyond that the single image mentality which is you know by and large what newspapers are and 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 um and working in sort of more sort of long form um narrative driven you know bodies of work or essays you, you mm. may call it or uh, you know stories and and stuff like that, but you know. So that's why, in by the the late nineties, I left the Herald. I had you know some other ideas and things that I wanted to do, and and embarked then on a on a freelance career of like photojournalism. And I mean, how do you actually tell those stories in long form? Like, I mean, how different is it to do that than say what you were doing with with the Herald originally? Like, is it does it take a total kind of reversal in the way you're thinking about an image well it, it starts with research where working as a, a, a press photographer back then you didn't really have to do a lot of research in fact you know i really we did really none we were dispatched with writers the writers were considered journalists we were photographers but we were neither both and we weren't photojournalists mm. we were we were there to illustrate the issues that that journalist or writer was was talking about and if they chose to illustrate a particular story through uh, an individual or a group of people, then they became our subjects. We had very little little say in what was you know who and what we could do. But uh, as a as a photojournalist, all that research then rests on on your shoulders, and you have to then go out and you have to you know you know find your subjects. You know you, you like research them, mm. research your topic. You need to read beyond you know what you just find in your newspaper and um it, it's a lot more it's a lot more involved and a moment that you, this really kind of shined through for you was obviously in the arche tsunami uh, where you took photos that really you know captured what that whole disaster was about i mean what was your experience there tell us about when you got there and and, and what you were focusing on when you were there um i, I decided to go a couple probably two days after the after the um the event it was a difficult time because uh, it was all it happened on Boxing Day, so mm. the media is essentially shut down across Sydney, and I was trying to raise um, well some money to to get over there, and and I'm um, trying to talk with people. It's really hard to sort of convince anyone to to put up put up any money, and um all, and that I couldn't do anyway. So I I used my own savings, which I've done most of my life, or, or most of my work has always been self funded, um and um. Took the money and I jumped on. A, I literally just jumped on a plane. I knew the. I knew there was. A, I talked to a couple of friends who are, you know, a couple of older friends of mine who had who had worked in Arche previously, 
Um, at that time, the the TNI or the Indian, Indonesian military had virtually kicked out everybody. They were they were fighting a war with GAM or the, the Free Aceh Movement, and they made sure that any foreign observer, journalist, you know, you name it, was out of there so they could get on with business. And um, the earthquake and subsequent tsunami then ended all of that, um, and that that allowed essentially the floodgates. No pun intended there, but they yeah. were opened for you know, journalists and, you know, NGOs to flood back in there. The, it was in, they were in chaos. You could imagine what, what, what was going on there. Yeah. Um, it, it was, I think it was, it was important for lots of reasons, you know, that to allow foreign observers essentially back in, in into Arche because of what was the Indone- Indonesians were doing there. And what did you face when you touched ground? What was, what was the disaster <clears throat> like that affronted you? Well, I, I, I flew straight into Medan. My first, um, and I, I was, I, I'd sort of done my research and, and um, I wanted, the first place I wanted to go to was uh, Malabo, which is quite like the second biggest city, I think, in, in Arche after the provincial capital, you know, Banda Arche. Most people were, were flooding into into Banda Arche. I, I wanted to go somewhere different. Um, I, I wasn't too sure how I was going to go there. I had no visa. I, had, I just took cameras and that was it. Um, when I was flying into Medan that day, and now I think it was almost on, I think the thirtieth of December, um, I saw a, I was watching you know a, a TV in the airport, and I watched this light aircraft, come, you know, come screaming into Malabo and landed. It was rickety, it was shaking, rattling. Everyone on board was cheering, <laughs> and I thought, I thought, what was that about? And then I arrived to um, Medan. The capital of Sumatra, and there was my friend Nick Moyer, photographer with the with the Herald. He he was actually on that plane. It was the first flight into um, Malabo, and it was a, like a German a German pilot. Him and his wife had a, a lobster business, and they just decided they'd do something really you know good for the people, and they 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 uh, put their lobster business on hold and ripped out all the cages out of the out of the fuselages of these two brand new planes and they were flying sorties into wow. into Malabo with um with with aid and so I just said to Nick he came off reeking of death and 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 I just said look who's this guy he said oh he's his number ring him up so I just rang the guy up and said look can I uh, can I jump on the plane tomorrow and he said yeah sure meet me at six and that was it he just flew me into um Malabo the following morning wow and then like I guess like when you did get there was Visually, can you paint a picture for us what it was like when you got there? Uh, visually, it was—I mean, it, it was an, just not a mess. You imagine, like, the, like the, I mean, the hardest thing in, in photographing in those situations is there's no reference points for composition and, and things. Everything's just like a massive jumble. Mm. Photographing wreckage of that that scale is—it's actually quite a, quite difficult to get your get your head around. I mean, I was walking when I got off the plane. I was picked up in a you know military jeep. And um, driven in, you know, I think it was an hour drive from, you know, into the into the centre of, of that of that town. But that was Malabo, I think, was the the first the, the first impact point after the after the uh, tsunami um, was triggered by the earthquake. Malabo was hit probably heaviest and hardest, you know, and, and first. And that's why I, that's why I wanted to go there. But yeah, it was the first kilometre, I guess, almost from the shoreline was just well nothing. Essentially, everything was the only thing standing. The only things standing were mosques, all yeah. the the pillars wow. to mosques, because they obviously they put they they put you know um, good concrete into <laughs> like uh, um, they built mosques really well. So a lot of mosques you know stood while everything else around them was flattened. 
And does it get like I mean for you? Do you get this like kind of I guess drive because of your work and you've got this kind of purpose to be there? But at the same time, like, is it confronting or do you just move beyond that because you know there's a purpose to why you're there? <clears throat> well, it it certainly happens, and you know, like I think you know, it's made easier if you have if you have a a, a purpose if you believe that you you're there for a good reason. If you you know, like I, I think you know, there's a lot of disaster zones, a lot of war zones around the world that photographers just itching to get into. They have got no real agenda. You know, a, a lot of them. You know, they're only they're only there because you know you know that's how they think they might make their name. Having said that, there's a lot of very really good photographers with you know that are, that are purpose driven, and um and, and they go into the, the same areas, um but it also helps in rationalising what has actually occurred, um, mm. um and you know and it's it's easier too to like a, a, a as bad as it was that particular earthquake and and tsunami, um it was it's easier to rationalise a, a natural event. Yeah, okay. unlike a, a war zone where you're just completely baffled as to you know how can people act like this you know? it's insane stuff that's for sure now look uh moving back on to the music the next song you got for us uh born out of time new christ <coughs> divine rights tell us about this track well uh, new i think new christ you know after i, I discovered radio birdman in you know like in, you know, in high school and and um that was a sort of next progression for me i i, I discovered yeah, you know, like a new Christ, and well, they've been, I think, my uh, lifetime sort of band. Like, um, I think the most, one of the most important bands, you know, in in my lifetime. And new and the and born out of time. Sometimes it just feels like a a life's metaphor. <laughs> yeah, just the title itself. Totally. <laughs> Let's back it on. Straight, I said, even though you're beautiful, I gotta tell you 
This is Out of the Box on FBR Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest on the show today is the multi-award winning photojournalist, Dean Saul. Now, uh, you did a, a project recently, the photographic essay, that was pretty interesting. You went to a, a Russian steel works and took photos of the workers in there and also the kind of what, what it's like working in one of those bloody crazy factories. But, I mean, how exactly did you become part of that project? Um, I was initially invited over by a Russian agency, uh, Rio Novosti. Mm. Um, they received a, a, a decent grant from, from the government to um, to produce a, a series of works that would run in conjunction with the G20 summit that was running in St. Petersburg in 2013, I think. So they they uh, pulled in a group of photographers. They got you know, 20 photographers from around the world one representative from each of the representative nations within the G20 itself. So it was a pretty, you know, like a, a conceptual sort of um, project. And there was a working theme called Labour in the um, Labour in the 21st Century, and and um, the, the the project was called. Uh, um, what was, what was it called? My memory's gone on this. Um, the Russian moment. 
Um, they asked us to su- submit a few ideas of what we'd like to do over there. It could, they said it could be anything, what we wanted to, where we wanted to go. And they submit a few ideas. They submitted, uh, so I submitted a few ideas. Well, they were all sort of knocked back. You know, maybe some of them seemed a bit too negative and 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 so forth. But um, but I sp- I lived for in Russia for just over a year for about you know fourteen months. Yeah. Um, in for, through ninety six. And one of the things I wanted to go see was these these gigantic steel towns and and mills and and so I I thought maybe I'll. I'll Put this to them as a proposal. So I, I threw at them this um, uh, this steel mill, you know, in the town of Cherpovitz. Whereabouts um, is that? Cherpovitz is about six hundred kilometres northeast of Moscow, mm-hmm. equidistant, really, between there and uh, Saint Peter's, Saint okay. Petersburg. So, um, and the whole the, the town was really significant. It was built specifically around this steel mill. So it is the it, it, it basically the mill is the economy of the of the entire city. Um, which they they green lighted in the end, and so I spent ten days, you know, from you know like about ten hours a day, like shooting steel work, shooting steel workers. I mean, like the way which most people look at Russia. I mean, even now, like well and truly after the Cold War, people think of Russia as a pretty crazy, wild place that they don't really have any concept of. I mean. For you on the ground there, having lived there as well for, for a period of time, and then going to these places that are still very reminiscent of what the Soviet Union was in many ways in the way people were living their lives, can you give us a bit of an insight into how different it actually is or how similar it is to, to our society? It, that's it, it's hard to say. I mean, Russia is, is it's a, it's a, its own beast. You know, like mm. it's a it's an, I think it's an incredible com- uh, country, and there's I mean, it was seventeen years between. Between me living there and, and then going back, so I had quite a. Uh, I, it, was, it was quite interesting to to look 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 back at it. it was it was a different. I was there in '96, and Russia was like bankrupt. Basically, it was mm. you know it'd been fleeced by the oligarchs. Um, so everything was there, there was not a lot happening. Everything was stagnant. It was pretty depressive in in some ways. Um, and you know, going back seventeen years later, it was like a, a different city. Like I walked through in '96, I was walking through, you know, um, I was walking through St. Petersburg, you know, and it, and it was, you know, it was, it was like a Dostoevsky novel, you know, like yeah. like straight out of there. And coming back seventeen years later, St. Petersburg was the most vibrant, happening city I've like ever been in. It was it's up there with like any major city in the world, you know, New York, London, Paris. St. Petersburg was just amazing, but you know my time documenting Cherpovitz, yes, the steelworks itself. To be honest, I, I never left the steelworks. I, I didn't even, I, did, I didn't yeah. even, I didn't even get to see downtown of Cherpovitz. Yeah, right. Um, I, I was, I was picked up. I was put in a hotel, and day by day driven there um, to the steelworks, um, where I worked for about ten hours each day and come back. I had negative negatives to develop at night time, so. I was getting about twenty hours. I was working for about twenty hours, getting four hours sleep, and getting up and do it again. Oh, and that was that was my experience, like yeah. you know, at Cherpovitz. So I, I didn't even. I really got. I did. I mean, I didn't even get to see the town itself. It's hard to say what Cherpovitz was like, other than the inside of a steel plant. Wow. And I mean, inside the steel plant, what what exactly was that like? Well, it, it was. It was. You can imagine it was mind blowing. It's. It's a. It's one of the biggest integrated steel businesses in you know in the it's a russian owned you know steel company um um called Severstal and you know it's just gigantic i mean the 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 factories the the buildings you could slot 
you know, airplane hangars into them. You know, everything is just gigantic in scale. I expected to have better access than what I did. It was very restrictive, and and I I imagined it was this you know dinosaur left over from you know, you mm. know from mm. Soviet times where I could just you know have, I would have you know carte blanche access and do whatever I wanted. But they were you know a couple of years earlier they really stapled down sort of you know um, safety and, and stuff. So I had like a I had a a, a, chap, a group of people chaperoning me the whole time wow, like at times yeah. like eight to ten people following me around it you know so i had to it was it become like a game i had to get it i had to create a certain boldness in them you know for them to to leave me alone and they would eventually <laughs> peel off and just let me so it took a bit of it took some time and a few days before these people to say well we can't walk around with this guy for 10 hours a day um <laughs> you know we, we need to get on with things so they eventually it just paired it got paired down to one then you know two to, then to one guy that was eventually chaperoning me where i could then I could then, uh, you know, get better access. And so I could say, come on, I need to get closer. I need to get closer. Oh, no, you can't because it's too dangerous. I said, come on, you know. And, and then so it, was, it wasn't until the last days that I, I started revisiting places within mm. the, in the steel plant itself, like the, the blast furnace, which is mm. possibly one of the more dangerous areas to be working in. Um, and, you know, I, at the beginning I had no access to it, but, by the end of it, I said, "Can we just go back there? Because I just want to have a. I just want to relook back into the blast furnace area. And when I had just one guy on me, then I could say, "Come on, just let me go there, you know, so I can get this shot." And that's when some of my best shots come. Well, if you want to check out some of those photos, if you just Google Dean Saul <coughs> photographic essay, ten days in Russia and in a steelworks, you'll get those images. They're pretty damn incredible. Now, Dean, moving on to the music again, uh, descent into the maelstrom. Radio Birdman, Sydney classic band. I mean, I mean, do you have, do you need a reason to play this song? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, <laughs> but it, it was it was very helpful for us. Like you know, like obviously a lot of the things we went into. Like I, I said earlier, you know, by around two thousand, we started. We really put the pedal on. You know, photographing bushfires. You know, me, Nick Moyer, you know, Mick Seekers, a couple of you know a few other. Um, Sydney photographers and we were chasing fires hard you know we and um this was kind of like we needed sort of music to to motivate us to get it you know to to, to to get into these sort of you know, throw fire yourself zones into the stuff. flames I guess in many ways yeah and um so like you know Birdman soundtrack was you know always a good motivational you know, musical force
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus, and my guest on the show today is multi-award winning photojournalist Dean Sewell. Now, to anyone listening, uh, have you ever walked down Elizabeth Street in Surrey Hills, just down from the Downing Centre there, that old car park, and noticed a bunch of pretty damn incredible images on the side of the car park? I've walked down there countless times myself and wondered, where have they come from? What's the deal with these? And funny enough, in in researching this little interview, I found out that Dean was heavily involved in in those photos. Um, He's part of a photography collective called Oculi, who a group of other photographers and Dean got together and and do different projects, um, this being one of them. Mate, can you tell us about that project and what you kind of, I guess, your idea was with putting those images up in this kind of derelict space in the city? Well, we were always looking for um, ways and means of promoting documentary photography. It's you know, it, it's not a genre that's you know, there's not a lot of places for it really in 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 sort of long form. And and we've always looked at look you know doing sort of you know we're always involved in sort of street art activities and putting up you know illegal you know post ups and things like that. And and I looked at this area and I thought. Wow, this would be a great place. The the brickwork was perfect. It was you know like there was these spaces are recessed in brick, and twenty or twenty five years ago, those holes were I think filled. I remember them. They were, there was I guess drawings they'd probably commissioned, you know, primary schools to draw you know, and paint <laughs> things on them, and they and they, yeah. they gradually just sort of fell out or smashed out or something like that. But it, it become just completely empty, and I thought. Well, Let's yeah, you know, it would be a good idea to put something in there. So we thought, let's get our work works up. So we, there's a bunch of us, and you know, a bunch of Oculi guys, and and some other guys was you know, me and Andrew Quilty and James Brickwood and Blondie and Nick Walker. I think it was about five of us, and we thought, let's get let's get a bunch of works each, and you know, and and um, so we 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 worked out we divided up the space. It was about forty images. We we put about seven pictures, you know, in into these holes each. And it was a guerrilla action to begin with because we thought we need to do this at night time. And so we had all the the right nice. equipment and, and um, you know, witches hats and, you know, bollards, <laughs> you know, to cordon it off. We had high-vis vests. You looked, we looked the part, you know. And um, as long as you look like you're meant to be there, then no one, no one's going to question you. Yeah. And so it was, a, it was a process and we got all these photographs printed up and, and, and one night, you know, installed them all. And, and this was a, you know, it was just a derelict part of city nothing was going on there it was just you know it was it was a, it was a wasteland and and uh we um so we we installed this one night and we got a bit of you know some some you know got some press some press uh, interest over it like uh, the city morning herald ran a piece on it and uh radio national ran a piece piece on it and the, the city of sydney were that impressed you know you know by us doing it and and then having lifted it from just a you know just a a, a a meaningless void into a into a an art gallery um that the, the following year they gave us a, a grant to uh, to do it more professionally it was done pretty ad hoc the first <laughs> time but it, it worked but um the, the the subsequent show which we sort of fielded out to other photographers um in a sort of a competition style sort of you know like submission process and selected seven photographers from you know from around australia mostly sydney and melbourne i think and and um installed their works on on aluminium backing and you know fastening with screws the city of sydney have i think uh 
he even installed it for us, so it was a lot of all part of, all part of yeah. Well, that, I guess that's inspiration for any artist out there thinking of doing some guerrilla work, so you should definitely do it, because you never know, you might get paid to do it next time. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, uh, something you, you described um, once, the city of Sydney, I guess, and the, the, the inner city of Sydney, as being a cultural Chernobyl. I mean, what, what did you mean by that? Well, it was just devoid. It was just empty. It was, yeah. you know, it was just barren of, you know, it was unlike Melbourne, where, you know, like they 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 allowed street art to, you know, to, to flourish, you know, particularly in the inner sanctum of the, the, the around the CBD, the lanes, laneways and stuff, where at the time and for some time they were, they, they had these graffiti removal gangs. You know mm. that were that were that were going around the the city. They were paying these guys, and these guys were making a fortune. They were contractors, <laughs> and they were being paid per square meter to re- to remove you know graffiti and you know and I'll put that in inverted commas for the listeners. Mm. But basically anything at all. So even if it was like bona fide, like really good street art, these guys were just painting over everything. So Sydney became that like you couldn't put anything up without. A, being removed the next day, they were even these guys were even removing really beautiful murals off entire walls in Darlinghurst, and they were, they were painting over everything. And mm. and there was, there was just nothing in the city. There was just there was just no street art in the city around the CBD or anything. So that for us was then a, a calling card. To, let's let's do something here. So we, we had a quite a few, we had a quite a few things going on. Like we we installed a, a pub, I think at the, the Palisades Hotel when that was under renovation some years back. We turned that into a gallery. We turned the the, the Louis Vuitton building when that was under construction into a into a into into a, a photographic gallery with four <laughs> nice. gigantic black and white images. Yeah. I mean that freaked them guys out. Like they they, they thought we were some rogue advertising company yeah. like trying to piggyback them to success and we'll just you know we'll just documentary photographers just wanting to share works with the with the people let's face it the 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 spaces we yeah. we took over were just blank beige you know like it's boring as batshit really. yeah there was nothing there and we thought let's put something into the heart of the city this was in a really prominent this was george street and market street yeah and, you know there's there's a prominence you get in the city and thought let's make a gallery here Perfect. More of it, I reckon. Now, uh, look, moving on to the music again. Next song you got for us is by Roland S. Howard. Very amazing character. Breakdown is a song you've chosen. Tell us about it. Well, I, th- I think, it, I mean, he's undoubtedly one of the, I think, m- most important musicians, I think, to come out of this, you know, country. Um, and, yeah, at the time, I I, I I wasn't that familiar with his with his solo work. You know, I, I, I knew his work, but like from, you know, the birthday party and, and stuff and I, when I listened to when I was younger. But I, I didn't follow his 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 um his career much after that and he, and, he, and his solo work and he and he produced two incredibly amazing albums, you know, which was it was my it was my my girlfriend, Bianca, she, you know, really introduced me to this to that album and then uh, you know, that was teenage snuff films and then then he's the 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 last album before he died, you know, um, Pop Crimes came out, but they're just two absolutely brilliant al- albums. They, I think, two albums that should be so much more famous than what they really are. But it's just that that song's just absolutely, I think, a beautiful example of of uh, Roland S. Howard.
entrance of the crying jag Stuffs a towel in his mouth to gag Oh my darling, I never knew How hard it was to get rid of you I smashed an our virgin date How did I reach that state? The day ends again and then My darling, here comes that breakdown
You've been listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus, and my guest today has been multi-award-winning photojournalist Dean Sewell. Now, mate, that's about all we have time for. We've probably got time for one more track. Um, but before we do, a lot of your work focuses on environment and climate change, and, you know, some of your images of these kind of drought um, and fire-ravaged landscape, as hauntingly beautiful as they are, deeply troubling. I mean, when did you start to focus on these kind of issues? I would say, you know... Seriously, you know, probably around the, the the late 90s, the very late 90s or, or around 2000. So I guess for the last, you know, 17, 18 years, you know, the environment increasingly became, you know, more important to me, the state of the environment, how we, as a, as a civilization, we treat our environment. These are really, you know, huge issues. And then, then came global warming and that sort of, they, they had to change that sort of title to, they had to evolve into climate change uh, for obvious reasons that were, everything wasn't just going hot but you know it was it was creating you know, change in all sorts of environments and extremities in you know hot and cold and and the the intensity of events that were occurring and things like that and and for me you know that's I think it's it's a it's a focus we all need to be like we should have our focus on because uh, it's going to determine how you know, we, we live as a as a as a, as a species really in, mm. in in the future. How we, it's going to determine everything that like how we live. You know, in every aspect of our lives, and it's it just it just uh, it's become so important to me that it become a large a large part of my work. It's interesting how you know photos of you know these incredibly desolate, um, you know, very apocalyptic kind of images. Um, can be captivating for an audience and can be beautiful to an audience, but also then have this message that is really raising the issue, which is deeply, deeply troubling. I mean, is that something you go for? Is that just natural in, in what the kind of content is? Well, I guess it's uh, it's a, a bit of both, really. Like, uh, I guess, you know, there's a, a certain aesthetic, I guess, that, that um, I look for and then governs my work. But then, you know, it, it's... Yeah, I don't have to do a lot. It's those... Those uh, it's a reality. Th- 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 those images are like I I, I, I I search them out and they're there. So often I you know I'd done a lot of fire work, um, you know, chasing you know fire fronts and I guess more my fire work now is probably more sort of aftermath mm-hmm. than 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 uh, actual you know you know in, in the moment sort of yeah. newspaper sort of stuff so I, I i i you know there's a lot of guys doing really good stuff you know on 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 fires they yeah. active fire chasers guys like you know nick moyer again he's still actively chasing walter peters with the with the herald they're really active fire chasing uh you know fellows and i think a, a lot of my work is like around fires these days is is, is a you know a more far more quieter i mm-hmm. guess and and just the i i guess sometimes that that you know it's a nice mix i mean these guys are producing you know, outrageous images of the fire and firemen running around in, in 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 these in in the, in the madness of the moment, and um, but sometimes you know, like a, a quiet image can you know just allow someone to have a quiet moment of you know reflection as well. And, yeah, they're and, quite sombering, really. Yeah, these and images, and, um, th- and and th- and think about that. I mean, I don't think I'll be chasing too many bushfires unless they you know like a unless the the, the it calls, you know. Mm. I have Fair to. enough. They're pretty intense things and pretty dangerous to be around <laughs> as well, if I might say. Now, uh, look, moving on to the music again. The next song you got for us is uh, Mick Daly, uh, Tiny Violins. Um, tell us about Mick. Mick Daly, he, um, uh, Mick's a, a really good friend of mine now. I only met Mick about seven years ago. 
um, he was, you know, pretty much instrumental in 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 uh, pushing me along, you know, in in documenting, you know, coal seam gas um, issues. Um, you know, he was on the he got on the he got on the phone to me one day and said, you know, I think you should get up to Kogel. You know, this is the next flashpoint in all this sort of stuff. Yeah, you want to get up here, and I so I took his advice and, you know, jumped in the car and flew up to Kogel, where there was a a blockade going on there and guys, you know, you know, uh, locked onto the ground, you know, preventing, you know, trucks moving in and out of the, you know, a, a, a potential gas zone. But, uh, um, but, you know, Mick is a, Mick is a, a, a wonderful writer. He's a, he's a, he's not just a, he's a, not just a, I guess a conscience of our, of our time, but he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a journalist as well. He, he, so he, he writes on these, on these issues of, you know, around, the extraction industries, mm-hmm. coal mining, coal seam gas issues, and he also documents that sort of stuff, you know, through song. You know, he's uh, really is uh, you know true troubadour in what he does, and you know, this um, that album, uh, Tiny Violins, I think released, you know, I think a year ago or or maybe a little bit bit longer. Um, I think it's a you know mixing a really important songwriter for our time, and he he really is a you know a, a, he's he's almost like how Woody Guthrie. Well, Dean, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Out of the Box. Big thanks to my producer, Nicole DiPaolo, for helping me put this one together. And before I bounce, we're currently in our supporter drive here at FBI, as I'm sure you're probably all aware. But what you might not be aware of is that all the blood, sweat and tears and the passion that goes into running this station is entirely volunteer. But we do need a little bit of support to keep the basic admin running. So if you're not signed up as a supporter, give us a call on 833-2299. 833-2299 and sign up for a measly $10 a month because it could go a long way in keeping this station on air. And it's also entirely tax deductible. So really, you may as well. Catch you next week. i never seen nothing to defend the company that I work for But they pay my bills and I beat it down when the chance comes through the door I worked on my life in machinery sheds You can see my dirty hands But the money I earn out on the line Well, it put me where I stand So turn the light out on my sins I went up to Queensland fixing pipes Up and down the line all day They tell you the truth you want to hear And they sure got plenty to say you can think what you like about my job But that truth won't get you far Cause I can smell the gas coming through them pipes And it smells like a barley ball So turn the light out on my sins Cause you don't know nothing if you don't know where I've been Well I'm a working man in a working land If everything is broken it's out of my hands Turn the light out of my sins And play the tiny violins I gotta keep working while the money is good I hear the company's got trouble I don't look too hard at the tar yard Where the Condamine River bubbles A farmer told me his child was getting sick from what we do He's starting to think maybe what the hippies from the city are saying might be true 
He wouldn't stop talking as he walked away He said his land is dying I said the company obeys the rules He says the company is lying But I believe the company They said everything's gonna be alright And I bought a new car And I bought a guitar And I bought a motorbike So turn the light out On my sins Cause you don't know nothing If you don't know where I've been I'm a working man in a working land If everything is broken, it's out of my hands So turn the light out on my sins And play the tiny violins I got no choice, can't be unemployed You know how it goes Either a man works for the company Or a man's got nothing to show One day I'll find a woman Who knows just what I'm worth I'll have the money to buy the big house on the hill And these days that costs the earth Till that day I'll earn my pay In a high-vis uniform and the money I earn out on the line will help weather the storm Cause they say it's coming closer on the news nearly every night I'll raise my glass and drink to whoever Mr. Murdoch says is right So turn the light out on my sins Cause you don't know nothing if you don't know where I've been well, I'm a working man in a working land If everything is broken, it's out of my hands So turn the light out on my sins And play the tiny violins so Turn the light out on my sins And play the tiny violins